0: My name is Jack Blanchard. I've I've only been at Politico for about three months. They are just expanding into London and hiring lots of political journalists at the moment. So I'm still finding my feet. Um, I'll talk about two things today. I'm going to talk about um, journalism and Brexit particularly because I think what's happened over the last year or a couple of years is, is fascinating. And the interplay between journalism or maybe the disconnect between journalism and people out in the country I think has played a part in, in, in the Brexit vote. And I've, my career has sort of charted that process, although I didn't really realise it was happening at the time. Now when I look back at working in the regions in the north of England and what was happening on the ground there, you could see this thing was happening in the country. But journalism never really, I don't think, picked it up until maybe much too late in the day. Um, And then I'll talk a bit about Politico and how we're now covering Brexit and and about Playbook and a different type of journalism, certainly new to me, I've worked in newspapers uh, my whole life up until this summer and so I suddenly find myself doing something very different, uh, online, an email service, um, and I'll talk a bit about that and how interesting that is as a journalist but also how that can deliver news to people uh, in a different way to to certainly what I've been used to. So I've been based in Westminster for almost six years covering politics and it's been a hugely turbulent time in British politics that I've been there. Uh, I didn't really realise what I was getting myself into when I went down there in 2012 and everything seemed quite normal and stable. The Olympics was happening, David Cameron was the Prime Minister, you know, Britain was a normal sort of quite a stable place. Um, And of course over the last couple of years it feels like a sort of hand grenades keep going off everywhere in Westminster and, and the whole political picture in the country has been completely transformed right before my eyes um, and almost none of it was foreseen by the media, none of it was really, the media was not ready for it, we, kept, we got everything wrong, every time we make a prediction we get it completely wrong and there was clearly this disconnect and probably still is this disconnect between the media and its audience who were voting in a way that we were just not able to predict until, you know, the day of the day of each of these votes. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about that and how that's happened and why mm. that's happened. Um, it start, when I look back on where this whole thing began. Um, my first job in newspapers was way back in 2005 when I was very, you know, I was in my early 20s. I was starting out as a journalist. I got a job on a local paper in a town I'd never heard of before called Boston. <laughs> Not that Boston. Uh, the, uh, there's a little Boston in Lincolnshire, which is a county in the Midlands, very rural area, agricultural. I'd never heard of it, but I went and did some work experience there. And it's, there was a little weekly newspaper there. They offered me to do training. It was my first job in journalism I was very excited to move there. But I mean, I'd literally never been there before. And it's a very middle of nowhere place, lots of farming, um, lots of agriculture. Uh, and this little market town with a weekly newspaper where I went to work. Um, my f- <laughs> my first story was Man Killed by Cow. Uh, it, was that, it, was that, it was that kind of place. Uh, um, it was a great grounding for me actually just on a personal level because I got to cover all different types of journalism, local hospitals, local schools, local authority. Um, which is fascinating and, and, I, and um, as Mira was saying give me a grounding in journalism that I feel like a lot of my colleagues in Westminster haven't had because they maybe went to university and then straight into a traineeship at a big newspaper and maybe never did that very local level reporting and it gives you a, a very interesting insight into you know, life in the country that, that I feel that a lot of people didn't have and Boston is a very interesting place um, in retrospect because it has this huge number of people from foreign countries working there picking vegetables and fruit in the fields. Um, and as soon as you arrived, you could feel this disconnect between the people that lived there, or the indigenous people that lived there, and people who had come. First, there were a lot of people from Portugal, and then in 2004, when I moved there, we had the accession of the other EU countries to Europe, and suddenly there were thousands of people arriving there from Poland and Lithuania and Eastern European countries. And they were doing very important work for the local economy, there was no unemployment, and yet you could see that people were coming into the newspaper office and saying to me, there's too many foreigners in this town, I don't like it. And you know, I I was sort of young, never been to a place like this, and I was telling them, what are you talking about, man? They're, you know, they're picking the vegetables, they're doing important jobs, you know, get out of the office, basically um, my view and I think most people at the newspaper view was, you know, these people are all slightly racist and backward and you know, that was that was the sort of, and there was immediately this disconnect between our readers and us on the newspaper and I remember very clearly the editors even printing some pages of the newspaper in a foreign language to try and um, to try and get some of all this big foreign readership to buy the local paper, and people would post back these pages, our readers, scrunched up with written all over, what do you think you're doing, how dare you, and at the time we just thought it was a bit of a funny place, but in retrospect, Boston um, is often now seen as a sort of, it's a place where people go and make documentaries about Brexit, the leave vote in Boston was 76%. Um, there was the highest of any any town anywhere in the country in 2016 long after I left but but as I looked back at it and I kept seeing these documentaries about you know the TV companies they'd always go to Boston and meet the local people and then say you know one third of the town is EU citizens and so you could see there this 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 thing was happening here more than anywhere else but certainly around the country and yet we even as the local paper in the town didn't really appreciate why people were getting so upset about it and why they and and, and and straight away there was this disconnect between us and them. Um, so I always look back on that as the sort of almost like the start of a 10-year journey for me and as I worked through other local papers and I, I started to get into politics I always think back of those people there and you, you know maybe we should have covered it in a different way could we have approach this issue better, I don't know. I was very young at the time and I didn't really appreciate the wider forces that were happening. Um, later in my mm-hmm. career as I, I went to work at other um, papers around the country before I moved to London and other phenomena were happening through the, the late 2000s. I remember one, I worked in a place called Worcester which is a bigger town in Worcestershire and um, we had a huge scandal in Parliament and the expenses scandal Um, when it was discovered that a lot of MPs were claiming for things on their taxpayer expenses, which possibly they shouldn't have been. Some MPs went to prison, others had to resign. And I remember working on the local paper having to go through all my local MPs' gas bills and he came in with this huge pile of papers. It was bizarre and I had to go through his mortgage records and all the rest of it. And again, we thought we were just doing a great job of like holding our MPs to account, and I suppose we were, but what it was also did was hugely undermined Parliament and MPs in the minds of the public. And again, I think that had big implications for what has happened since then. Right around the country, um, politicians were <coughs> suddenly being viewed as bad and corrupt in a way that hasn't really been the case in the UK. I think people generally sort of in the past had, um, not deference to MPs, but certainly didn't view them as, you know, crooks in the way that suddenly they did as a result of this. And of course, the other thing that happened at the same time was the global financial crash, which had huge implications for every community, but particularly in the north of England, where people are a bit have a bit less money, wages are lower, and I ended up on a newspaper in Yorkshire, and you could see this happening before our eyes, that people... suddenly struggling in the way they weren't before and we did a lot of stories about the way that local services were being cut Uh, people didn't have the support that they used to have Um, and again when i look back now and i see that the anger that was felt in these regional communities about that about this issue of immigration from europe and about this anger towards westminster it starts to make a lot more sense of what i've seen since i've been in westminster Um, And in a way that, you know, when I talk to journalists and politicians who really have just spent their whole time in London, when the Brexit vote happened, they were just incredulous. You know, why, how, who, how could this be? But actually, I think if you think about the forces that have been happening out in the country, um, you know, sort of the signs were there. Maybe nobody realised it was quite on the scale or angle that it was, but, but, you know, the reasons were there. And, And when I look back, I can, I can sort of. See what, they, see what they were to some extent. Um, I moved down to Westminster in 2012, as I say, things seemed quite stable then, but um, I guess it was probably 2014 when suddenly you realized mm-hmm. things, the country was changing. Um, I joined the, the Daily Mirror, which as Mirror says is a tabloid newspaper, very partisan tabloid newspaper, very political, um, in a very left-wing way, it's quite affiliated with the Labour Party, Uh, and it was a different kind of journalism for me because this felt like being part of a campaign suddenly, everything was written with a very clear left-wing slant, the government was bad, Labour were good, Uh, and the first thing they did was sent me up to Scotland to cover the Scottish independence referendum which happened in 2014. (coughs) Uh, And this again was really interesting because (coughs) what I saw on the ground there was nationalism, for the first time really that I'd seen that in the UK. It was never really almost felt people were always slightly embarrassed about their country in the UK in a way. It wasn't Some people didn't talk in you don't see the sort of flag waving you get in America and all the rest of it. But suddenly in Scotland there was this fever in the country and I remember being in the pubs and in the taxis, talking to people and they were all talking about, you know, Scotland, they were discussing currency and all these issues that you'd never seen before and, and Although in the end um, Scotland voted to remain in the UK, we had this huge turnout of voters who wouldn't normally vote in, a, in an election, something like 20% higher turnout than you would get in a general election. And again you could see there something was happening, that some, something was fuelling people to come out and vote in an election when they normally wouldn't do and vote in a way they felt they were sort of sticking up for their country uh, in a way we hadn't really seen before. And so again, when I think of the Brexit vote a couple of years later, I think that phenomenon, sort of its own version of it spread into England and and into Wales as well and helped fuel that to happen. Um, So the last two years I've been in Westminster, first at the Daily Mirror and now at at Politico, um, covering this incredible time of turbulence, which really began with the 2015 election when David Cameron won a majority which no one was really expecting and suddenly had to deliver on this promise of an EU referendum, which I don't think he'd ever really felt he would have to do because he didn't really think he was going to win. He sort of surprised himself with how well he did. Um, And then he had no choice but to do it. But Cameron being Cameron, he was super confident. Of course I'll win. I always win. You know, he has that sort of, it's bred into you, I think, isn't it? Um, And he'd won in 2015 and he'd won in Scotland. So he was super confident he would do it again. Um, And of course it didn't turn out like that. and, and I think back to how the me- the media's role in that referendum, and it's, um, I think it, it's it, the media played a hugely important role in it, but not really perhaps intentionally. Um, I think the Prime Minister had felt that the media would get behind him um, in the end when he said that we should remain in the UK, that, he, that most of the media supports the Conservative Party. When I was in Scotland, the whole of the media was behind. Uh, Scotland voting to stay in, in the UK, and but but this time it didn't happen. Um, the m- much of the right wing press came out for Brexit one by one, and suddenly Cameron found himself, you know, re- fighting against the tide for the first time. Um, I was at the Daily Mirror, which is, as I say, a left wing paper and one that supported Remain, and I think he had hoped that we would come out, you know, all guns blazing. For Remain, but that didn't really happen either. Although we did support Remain, um, this the editor was conscious suddenly of this disconnect between the media and the readers. And we did polling of our own readers, and it showed that 50% of them voted supported Remain, and 50% of them supported Leave. <laughs> well, if you're an editor trying to cover a story like that, you're suddenly in an extremely difficult position. You know, news- newspapers are struggling to survive in the current climate, they don't have the readership they used to, they don't have the advertising they used to, you can look at the sales figures for yourselves, they can't afford to you know, piss off half of their readership by going all guns blazing <coughs> against something that you know, they believe, and for some believe very passionately, um, so it put newspapers like ours in a very difficult position. Um, we didn't feel that we could go massively hard campaigning for months and months in the way that we would do in a general election where we know that 90% of our readers vote Labour and so you know it's, it's very easy for us to cover a general election in that sense, this was much more complex the other thing that was very difficult about covering Brexit um, during the referendum campaign was it is so bloody complicated, I mean it is such a difficult issue once you get down into the nitty-gritty of what does this actually mean? What are the implications of Brexit? As we are now seeing as the negotiations happen, there are so many aspects to it, and a lot of them are really quite boring. Um, You know, we're writing endlessly about customs now. Now, who ever wrote a story about customs in the past? You know, nobody wanted to talk about customs. If I tried to pitch to my news desk at the Daily Mirror, I think we should do a big feature on customs, I'd have just got laughed, you know. They, it, it's, it's a tabloid newspaper, they don't want to hear about that. They've, they're competing with celebrity news and big exciting events. You know, news needs to be interesting. And customs is not interesting. And yet it's really important. You know, we're now seeing the huge implications of it being in the customs union, what it means for Northern Ireland and so on. And so I think the media had a very tough time of it in 2016 trying to cover the issues around Brexit in a serious way because they are inherently complex and quite dull, and for people who haven't made their mind up, and a lot of people had never really thought about, um, you know, the issues around Europe until suddenly Cameron put it in front of them and said, you must decide, yes or no, is this good? And people kept saying they wanted more information about it, but trying to write about it in an interesting way, in a meaningful way, was a real challenge, especially for a tabloid paper. Um, And I think the Brexit campaign cottoned onto that pretty early. And what they did was just make their message very simple. Vote leave, you take back control. You know, take back control of your money, control of your borders. Who doesn't want that? And, and the Remain campaign was trying to make complicated arguments about why this would be bad. And they just com- kept coming against this wall of this very simple message. Um, I think the other interesting thing is the role of the broadcasters in the campaign. Um, we have very strict election laws in the UK about During an election or a referendum, there has to be total balance between the two sides, or maybe more than two sides, um, on broadcast, so TV and radio. What that meant was that the BBC had to really bend over backwards to make sure that if you present one side, you'd always present the other side. And it meant you were giving equal weight to this very simple message, vote, leave, take control, versus these very complicated messages about the difficulty of customs arrangements and, you know, new court systems and all the rest of it. And I think it didn't, that very rigid system of, um, although you have to have balance, that very rigid system probably didn't do the public any favours in terms of, you weren't able to say, well, this side's claim is just nonsense, by the way, (laughs) because some of the claims on both sides were definitely nonsense. But the, because the broadcasters didn't feel that they're in a position to you know, call that out, they just present one side, then the other side, each time present one side, then the other side. And sometimes things were given equivalents that maybe they didn't deserve. Um, so what, all of those different things that I've spoken about, I think, led to what happened in 2016. And I, I do think the media had a role in not recognising what was happening in the country early um, and then not really covering the campaign in a meaningful way. Um, Nonetheless, from a journalist point of view, it's fascinating to be there and watch this you know, watch this thing unfolding and writing, writing about it every day and Westminster was an incredibly exciting place last summer if you sort of detach yourself from you know, your country is in chaos and just you know, enjoy the journalism of writing about it and now this has happened and now that has happened and now this has happened and we had the it felt like the country was in, having a nervous breakdown for a couple of weeks, didn't it, in June when the Prime Minister resigned and then half the Labour Party walked out of the shell of cabinet and the pound was collapsing and, and Boris was going to be Prime Minister, then he wasn't going to be Prime Minister, and then Andrea Ledson was going to be Prime Minister, then she wasn't going to be Prime Minister. <coughs> um, from a sheer journalistic point of view, it was absolutely fascinating to cover as a story. Um, and in some ways, I guess I owe my new job with Politico to Brexit because, as, as I think Mira sort of uh, hinted at, um, Politico really are in London, I, I, they haven't said this to me, but I guess in a large part because of the Brexit vote. So for those of you that don't know much about Politico, a, they were set up in 2007 in, uh, in Washington DC by a couple of Washington Post journalists who weren't happy at the time with the way their newspaper was covering politics online, and they felt there was an appetite for very up-to-the-minute, very close, granular coverage of what was happening in Washington in a way that, you know, just filing for a newspaper once a day with a story for the whole country didn't really cut it. They were getting all sorts of little tidbits of gossip that they were interested in and their colleagues were interested in, but there wasn't really a home for it. And so they found a financial backer and they set up this website, and as Mira says, it, it, they were right, it went huge, because it turns out... People working in politics, they love reading about politics in a very in-depth way and about the gossip and who's up and who's down and who's been at this party and who's been at that party. And actually a lot of people work in politics and then more than that, people who are working in business who have a vested interest in politics, they want to read about that stuff too. And then it turns out quite a lot of people out in the country are quite obsessed with politics even though they're not actually working in it and actually they quite get involved in the soap opera aspects of politics and they want to read about this guy's in, this guy's out, and, and they, they're interested in watching these policies develop. And so Politico took off in a very big way, and that their flagship um, sort of idea in, in Washington was Playbook, which was what they called their morning email briefing, which went out every morning to, Well, actually it started off, I think the, the, their first hire as a journalist was a guy called Mike Allen, who was, um, I think he worked for Time Magazine, and it started off with him sending an email to his boss every morning, saying, "Here's what you need to know about happening in politics today." And he'd send it at six o'clock in the morning. And the two guys that set up the company thought this was great, really useful. Mike's morning email, everything you need to know today, just to, you know, before we even get started. And I think one of them forwarded it on to someone in the White House and said, "Have you seen this? That Mike does? It's really useful." And they said, "Hey, Mike, can you copy us in on your email?" And so the story goes and it was people would forward it to their friends <coughs> and it spread more widely and eventually it became this big thing. Um, it now goes out in the US to over 100,000 people every morning. Um, there's four people who work on their Playbook email. It, uh, it has sponsored, it has an event, it's a huge, it's like a franchise. Um, and they've extended it, there are Playbooks in California, in uh, Florida, New York City. Um, and it's become almost, because there is no real Politico newspaper, daily paper as such, this email has become their sort of, the thing that everything hangs around. Um, so when Politico moved to Brussels in 2015, they had no doubt that one of the things they were going to do was launch a playbook for Brussels, um, and the thinking behind them moving to Brussels was that no one was really covering the EU in a, in this in the way that they were covering Washington with, you know, every day very close, intense political journalism now. This has happened now, that's happened, this guy was here last night. No one really did that for the EU. Maybe the Financial Times a bit, but not quite the way that Politico would do it. And so they went in all guns blazing into uh, Brussels, hired 50 or 60 journalists, and basically took over the town, and is now the best read thing in, in Brussels by far. And my colleague Ryan Heath, who writes the Brussels playbook, I mean, he's like, I went over to shadow him when I joined Politico for a few days before I started the London version just to see how he did it. And it was like hanging out with a celebrity. Like, you'd wander, down the street in Brussels and people are like, hey, Ryan, and running up to tell him what they thought of his email that day. Like, everybody reads it. Um, and this is what they want to create in, in in London. And so when the Brexit vote happened and they had all these people in Brussels and they suddenly realised, I think, you know, they had, like, one person in London, but they suddenly realised that this this story, you need to cover it from both ends. If you're going to cover Brexit properly, you need a big team in London and a big team in Brussels. And we already had the biggest team in Brussels, so we're in a great position to cover this incredible story. You know, we've got a head start. If we hire a big team in London as well, then nobody else can can compete with what Politico has. Uh, And so through 2017, they've been hiring more and more journalists, um, of which I am the latest. I joined in the summer from the Daily Mirror after the latest... Uh, general rating. And they hired me specifically to launch London Playbook, um, which launched in the start of September. Um, if you give me your email addresses afterwards, I will sign you up, it's free. Uh, it goes out every morning at 6.45 and the idea is that it is a briefing, uh, not just on Brexit, but on everything you need to know about Westminster politics today. And the model is basically that um, you know your phone goes off at quarter to seven in the morning with your alarm. You pick it up, there's the email from me before you've even got out of bed. You scan through it and you start the day. You're already briefed on literally everything you need to know about politics that day. And it is hugely popular um, simply because it's useful. It, it, it is designed to be useful specifically for people who working politics uh, or are so interested in politics that it's the first thing that they <laughs> think about when they wake up in the morning and you'd be surprised how many people that is true of them ashamed to say i am probably one of them um i sort of pitched the email and my previous job was political editor at the daily mirror which means i was in charge of all the daily mirrors um political output and you know my morning would start with me at a day program and reading all the papers and thinking about what was in the diary for that day and pulling together a morning news list for my editor of, you know, these are the stories that me and my team are going to be writing today. So, I really just thought about, well, what would I want to have in an email when I wake up that would help me in that process, and that was basically the model for what Playbook would look like. Um, And it has so proved to be, so far, very good, I mean, we've we've only been going, what, two months or something? We have 25,000 people reading it every day. and they're actually reading it. And they're actually reading it, so we can see them opening it somehow with the wonders of email technology. You can see whether people are just ignoring it or not, and the open rates are terrific. I am assured. And I know that our uh, primary audience, which is people working in politics, are reading it because I'm in Westminster every day, and they tell me, you know, so senior jo- journalists at the BBC, people in Downing Street, come up and tell me they like it and it's useful. And, and the model has always been that if those people find it useful and interesting, then so will other people who are you know very interested in politics. Um, the funding model is basically sponsorship. so we have had a succession of big companies who want to pay to sponsor the email they will have a they'll have their name in the header brought to you today by whoever BP whatever and they will include a message or two in the, within the email. They don't influence the content at all. I don't even know who the sponsor is going to be when I send the email off, someone adds it in afterwards. It doesn't affect the content. They just, they get to include a message or two to our readers. And I think from their point of view, if they know that everyone in Downing Street reads this email every morning, half the MPs in Parliament read this email this morning, (coughs) political editors of BBC and ITV read this email every morning, that's a valuable audience for them to be reaching. And so there is a financial model there that, that works that's quite different to anything I've seen before working in newspapers and obviously newspapers are struggling um, Politico seems to have found a different way to make money which I find impressive and also quite heartening I mean from my point of view I've worked in as I say the local press and more recently the national press and you know newspapers are struggling to survive everywhere certainly in this country and I suspect around the world the funding model doesn't really work anymore right the, the advertisers aren't spending anything like they used to people aren't buying newspapers like they used to people expect their news for free in a way that they didn't used to and we all know this politico um, has found ways of making money that other newspapers haven't really done one is the sponsored email service which is i'm assured very profitable the other thing that they do that's really interesting is they hire policy uh, journalists, alongside we as political journalists. Um, so we have a team of energy reporters, we have a team of tech reporters, health reporters, transport reporters, and they will sell their, their work as a subscription in, in what they call verticals. So we have a subscription health t- service and a subscription tech service. And if you work in those industries, to have a team of politico journalists who are, they know are very connected with the politics of power but also are specialists in the area giving you a news service through the day tailored to your industry people find very valuable and they will pay lots of money for it and that makes lots of money and that allows we the politics reporters to give, our way, to give away all our stuff for free um, and that gives us a profile I guess and lets people know that Politico are informed and are well connected and and what all that means is that Politico is a company that's expanding <laughs> which I've never seen in journalism before you know the idea that a, a media company just suddenly goes right we'll move to this city and we'll hire a load of journalists you know I was a political editor at a uh, one of the biggest newspapers in the country and they came and you know tapped me on the shoulder and you know made me a nice offer and and you know that doesn't there aren't many media organizations mm. that are in a position to do that kind of expansion and so from a sort of industry perspective i find them fascinating and currently very heartening i've only been there 2 months so i you know maybe i'm in my honeymoon period but what's great about them is that their driver is because of the model i've just described doesn't seem to be you know as many people as possible to click on our story which is very much the driver for most national media organisations and that can lead to this sort of clickbaity style journalism where really all that matters is how exciting does my headline sound and can I almost trick the reader into clicking on it or infuriate the reader into clicking on it, which actually doesn't make for good journalism a lot of the time. And What Politico, because the funding model is quite different and their money is from subscriptions and sponsorship, they're not chasing clicks. They, just, they want people to know that they're informed and that they're right and correct and that they're first. And so our driver is to be... Those things. You know, we don't care if a million people read the story as long as informed people read the story and they think it's right. And that gives, as a journalist, this is incredibly liberating because your job is to be right. <laughs> and that isn't always the case at, um, in, in, in the national press. It really isn't. Your, your job is to, you know, create a very interesting story that people want to click on. Um, And so for me, personally, it's been very refreshing and a very different type of journalism. Um, The nuts and bolts of what I do now for Playbook is completely different to working for a newspaper. So as I say, the email goes out at 6.45am every morning and I have a sub-editor who reads it first and makes sure that I haven't got someone's name wrong and that all the links in the email work and so on. So I have to send it to them in advance of that, which means I do a lot of my work in the middle of the night now. I don't really sleep anymore. Uh, I haven't figured that bit out, but um, but it gives you a lot of freedom as well. I can come and do this during the day because I haven't got a deadline to file at five o'clock like I would have had uh, a newspaper. I'm not filing for the web. My boss said to me, Jack, you send one email a day. That's your job. So great, right? Um, it's quite a long email and it does take quite a lot time, but it, it gives me a freedom that I'm really enjoying so far. Um, and you sort of feel like you're writing for informed people rather than trying to explain very complicated things (coughs) in a very simple way which is much more of the process of writing for a national newspaper and that is also good fun because you sort of, you can imagine your audience as you're writing for them because you see them every day and you know what jokes they'll be interested in, you know what little bits of gossip they'll be interested in and so for those of you who haven't Yet signed up for the newsletter. Um, it's 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 not only full of you know these other things. The idea is that the idea is this is what's happening today, and it will have you know diary items. So today I'll have had a long list of all the things happening in Parliament today. Also the most important things from the newspaper, little bits of gossip from Westminster that I picked up, my little insights maybe into the big stories of the day, which is this harassment scandal which is gripping Westminster. Irwin. So I'll be spending the day speaking to MPs and officials. About their experiences and i'll be including some of that in my sort of this is what you need to 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 know today thing um and it's basically yeah it's it's proving to be very popular um what will be interesting to see is whether it has a reach beyond westminster sort of beyond the primary audience and whether normal people in the uk want to read about who was at what party in westminster last night and so and so been briefing against so-and-so and these are going to be the big stories today but I can't tell you what they are yet because they haven't happened. That is yet to be seen but that's sort of a secondary audience for us compared with people who are very, very interested in politics. Um, so it's a bit of a bold new venture for me but um, so far so good. Uh, I'm, it is great fun. I'm happy to answer any questions about it or anything you want to talk to about Brexit is now my specialist subject. Um, so I'll probably stop talking now and um, yeah, see you. Anyone's got any questions to ask? Great. Okay. Thank you. That was really...